This message by Jeff Hodgson was recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Jeff serves as a pastor on staff with Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. We will continue in our Psalms series. We'll be looking at Psalm 139 today. If you don't have a Bible with you, we would be thrilled to give you a copy. We have copies in the back free for you to have. So if you need a copy of the scriptures, just raise your hand, keep them up, and our usher team will be happy to, to bring you one. All right. I know what you're thinking. Hey, Jeff's preaching today. I wonder, I wonder what flying or World War II story he's going to tell. Amen. You think you know me so well. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, uh, I'm an airline pilot in my other job, and my dad was a little boy in England during World War II, uh, so those things are dear to me. Well, maybe I have a few other tricks up my sleeve. Or maybe not. <laughs> for those of you who haven't heard, a new World War II movie called Dunkirk came out a couple weeks ago about the rescue attempt of the British Expeditionary Force from France in the fall of 1940. If you need it, here's the historical setting. The Nazis had surprised everyone with where they invaded, where they chose to invade France. And in so doing, they trapped the Allies between the invaders to the south and west of them and the rest of the German army that was poised waiting in the east. And the only way of escape to get away from this crushing vice was to go north to the English Channel. So parts of the British Expeditionary Force and the French army that could escape found themselves pinned against the sea, hoping against hope for a rescue from the Luftwaffe attacking from above and the Nazi tanks rolling toward them. And they were completely at a loss about their situation. It was so dire that the British government expected to rescue less than 10% of the 400,000 who were trapped. The rest would be captured or killed. The soldiers on that beach had no way of fixing their own predicament. As much as they would have loved to have turned back the clock or speed time ahead to a day where the threat was gone, as much as they would have loved to have fled to a safe haven, as much as they would have loved to have woken up to find it was all just some terrible dream, their lives had come to this. From where would help come? All right, if what I'm about to tell you spoils the ending for you, may I suggest you read more history? <laughs> Anyway, spoiler alert, a call went out for small craft of every kind, whether they be fishing boats, tugs, pleasure boats, or yachts, to cross the English Channel and to help rescue the troops. All along the south coast of England, 
the little ships went out to save the army. Or as William Manchester wrote in his masterful biography of Winston Churchill, English fathers sailing to rescue England's exhausted and bleeding sons. There's a reason stories like that resonate with us. Sometimes life overwhelms us. Sometimes we find ourselves beyond our own meager abilities, with nowhere to run, and seemingly alone and without help. The reason this story stirs our souls is because that we know deep down that we need rescue. Is there a father to save us, his exhausted and bleeding sons and daughters? Today we turn to Psalm 139, where we find a song of David to sing when life is overwhelming. David had many times that wearing the mantle of leadership made him aware of his smallness, his helplessness apart from God's salvation. And the song notes a few things. It draws attention to the idea of someone truly knowing you. It draws attention to the idea of someone being there for you, no matter what. And it explains why this may be so and it considers how that might affect us. So today, four points. Being known, not being alone, being owned, and being rescued. These are the things of which David sings, and I think the Lord would have us come away from this morning aware that God is with us, and that makes all the difference. We're gonna look at these points this morning but would you first join me in praying before we turn to God's holy word. Gracious God, you are so kind and good to us. We're reminded of that again this morning. As we gather together in peace and in love, as a church family, to once again receive from you, how kind you are to us. And yet, Lord, we are also aware that we are in a fallen world, in a life that at times overwhelms. And while we enjoy this peace, this grace this morning, we also face difficult times. And we need your help. So Lord, would you attend to us this morning? Would you build our faith through your word with this song of David, would it build our faith? Would it strengthen us in those times that we face overwhelming adversity? Help us, Lord God, and be glorified in our lives. We pray boldly in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. All right, would you please turn to Psalm 139? We're going to start with verses 1 through 6. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. 
You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. What makes relationship with another most meaningful? Is it having shared events or shared experiences? Well, partly. But you were there with 100,000 other people when Tennessee finally beat Florida, right? <laughs> you certainly wouldn't consider the random person in section GG to be one of your more meaningful relations. Or is it a meaningful relationship based on having things in common like hobbies or a job? Well, those things are nice too. But there are 10,000 United Airlines pilots who share a love for flying. There must be something more. And until we get down to those intimate and personal details of our hearts, everything else really comparatively is superficial and commonplace. Politics and the weather and sports, those things may be interesting, but they aren't the kinds of things that make relationship most meaningful. But there are those relationships where you truly know the other person and you are truly known by them. And those are the ones that are most dear, aren't they? To them, our hearts are open. We're vulnerable. We walk in faith with each other. And when life brings its greatest joys and most significant struggles, are these not the people to whom you turn? They know something of your heart, and they know something of how you may be tempted, and they know something of how you may be encouraged. Chris is right. Community groups are starting up this week. Immerse yourself in those folks. Find in those places where there are these authentic relationships, where you can know and be known. Did the men on the beaches of Dunkirk wonder if there were someone, anyone, who knew what they were going through? who understood their fears and vulnerabilities and weaknesses and plight. Someone, anyone, whose passion would be stirred by the intimate and personal awareness of the pain that they were suffering. Were there fathers whose sons were inescapably on their hearts? Would knowing that for those men have made a difference to them? As you stand on your Dunkirk beach, what if there were one who knew you completely? One with whom there was no aspect of your life that he didn't know entirely, and better yet, still loves you. <laughs> who follows your every move and thought, who is acquainted with all of your ways, even what you will say before you say it. 
What if there were one who was so close to you that he says things like, I am in you and you are in me? Who says that he has by his Holy Spirit taken up residence in your heart? From whom there is no hiding or even a need to hide. And isn't continual hiding just exhausting? What if there is one with whom you could rest? He knows you. He knows you because he is with you, which is very, very good news. Because there's something about us that doesn't want to be left alone. And so our second point today is not being alone. Let's go back to the psalm and pick up at verse 7 where David sings of this very thing. Verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me not be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Does being alone matter? Scripture surely seems to think that it does. We can learn so much about the human condition from Genesis 2. After having sequentially declared his creation good, God makes the stunning declaration that something wasn't good. It's not good for man to be alone, he said. Seems there's something about us and our design that demands we be in relationship with another. In one sense, that explains our desire for and our satisfaction in godly interactions with other people. We bear the image of God as we interrelate like that. Like the Trinity relating to one another in mutual love, so we glorify God. We put His character on display when we love others. But in another sense, we recognize that that can't be the be-all and end-all. Humans are imperfect and fickle and finite. They can't be with us everywhere. And if we make the mistake of depending on a transitory and fragile and limited thing like another person, instead of something that is eternal and solid, at best, that's just not street smart. But really, it's something to repent from. For we're showing ourselves to be idolaters, worshiping the creation rather than the creator. So the relationship we are ultimately made for is with God himself. And life in a fallen world is too big, too poignant, too complicated, too difficult to manage without him. Thankfully, there are times we're wise enough to see that we need something bigger than what's visible around us. We're wise enough to see that we need something unexpected and powerful 
to meet us on the beach. Those men on the Dunkirk beaches needed something astounding to happen. Did anything around them look like it was going well? The soldiers on the beach didn't know what to expect. They only knew to get in lines and hope for things to work out. And the officers who did know a little bit more simply expected to be overrun. They needed someone to come. They were alone. And they didn't want to be. Well, what if something no one expected happened? What if the only way to save them actually did emerge? What if fathers who could not leave their sons forsaken came? What if there were one in your life who said to you that he walked with you in the cool of the garden, with you on your wanderings in exile, with you in his incarnation, promises that he will never leave you nor forsake you. Would that change how you view your trials? What's your Dunkirk? Does your work disappoint? Does your work frustrate? Are there financial difficulties? Are your relationships not going well or are they in tatters? Has your health gone bad? The list of our trials is endless. But his dedication with you to be with you through them is not. His dedication to be with you is infinite. But beyond being known and not being alone, what if you knew that you belonged to another to whom you were precious? Let's go back to the psalm where at verse 13, we hear David sing of God's ownership of him as his sovereign creator. Verse 13. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. There is a profound difference between having a friend nearby who knows you and having a sovereign. And not merely a human sovereign who may be overturned, but a sovereign who owns you because he made you and has ordained all of your days. We don't speak much of fealty anymore, which is surely to our detriment. The American way and the way of our fallen flesh is to think of ourselves as autonomous. I am my own man. 
No one tells me what to do. Yet, if we were to think a different way, that we owe allegiance to another, and to acknowledge his wisdom and his rule in our lives, might that help us to cultivate more of an awareness of all the ways he is at work in our lives? Might our communion with him be richer and more real to us? David recognized that from before his birth, God was at work in and through him. He recognized that there was no part of his being that God didn't attend. And he liked that. It comforted him to remember that God is in charge and what God is like. Did those men on the beaches go where they needed to go? Did they hope in something from their fathers across the waves that would come to their aid? Did how they viewed those back home affect their hope, even if things seemed hopeless? They were on that beach for a reason. They were on that beach because they were being obedient to those in command over them. Did it affect them to think that all the ways they had been cared for all of their lives by the people back home, did that affect them? Did they go to those beaches? Or did they just go their own way or sit down and give up? What if we thought on all the ways God has brought us thus far? He has us here this day and is reminding us to think on the grace that exists in our lives. He has given us all good gifts and he sustains us through all of our trials. We stand today because he has brought us to this place. In our laments, in the times where we cry out when life is overwhelming, is there a place for gratitude in there as well? Are we looking for what he is doing in everything in our lives? In the providence of God, what have you been given? Whom have you met? Where do you go? Where have you gone? Are you seeking to discern the mind of God in all of these things? and to see how he is making you more and more into the image of Christ through them. Okay, God knows us. God is with us. God owns us. And when we cry out to him, he rescues us. Once more, let's go to the psalm and consider how we are being rescued. Our last point, verse 17. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, 
They are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. O oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. O oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. David begins this last section with praise, and rightly so. To know God is to love God. When David thought on God's character, he was moved to worship, for God is unlike any other. And then, only then, does David transition to seek his rescue, recognizing how much he needs him. All right, I need to have a little side note here for a second uh, because I need to speak to kind of the imprecatory nature of this portion of the psalm where you you start asking God to call down curses and, and so forth. And, and I want to encourage you not to be thrown off by the imprecatory language of the psalm in this, in this part. We know Scripture to be the infallible Word of God, and we know Scripture to be literature, written in particular ways to have different kinds of emphasis to emphasize particular things. This is a song. It's a poem meant to convey something more than just a superficial understanding. Great poetry always communicates deep truth in ways that just can't be superficially written or read. And if we're not careful with verses like these, we can then go and make the mistake of ignoring God's commands to love our enemies as well. So we want to be careful. So here's what I think is happening in this imprecatory section. I believe King David, threatened by the enemies of God and personally facing their, uh, his own on, uh, onslaught, um, used that circumstance to communicate something. Here's what he needed to communicate. David needs the salvation of the Lord. But he needed it in more than one way. As so often was the case in David's reign, he faced life-threatening, do-or-die situations that clearly showed the divide between God's people and God's enemies. And David needed help to fight against them. That's clear. But there's something else that we don't want to miss. He also needed help in dealing with his own heart. David knew that he was God's anointed, and yet he wasn't content to leave the question unasked. Is there anything in me that stands opposed to you, O oh God? Is there anything in me that needs to be changed? When we cry out for mercy, 
Let's let that be a part of our cry as well. If in fact we are being transformed into the image of Christ, and that's the promise of Scripture, that's precisely what we would like to see going on in our lives. Our thoughts, our loves, our desires would be growing to match those of God. We want to be on the same page with Him. Now don't you just know that the soldiers' minds on the beaches of Dunkirk were racing every time they heard the scream of a Stuka dive bomber coming at them with guns blazing and, and bombs at the ready. You know their minds were racing. Should we have come here? Did we make the proper decision to race north to this beach? Is this right? Is this what our people back home want us to be doing? And don't you suspect that in the moments of peace between the attacks, they thought about their lives and what was important and good and real? Did what they were going through affect their character? Did it change them? How much did those boys on that beach become men? None of us has arrived. None of us can say that God's great work in us is finished. But all of us can say God's great work in us is a promise to be realized. Even as we ask him what grievous ways are in us and to be led in ways everlasting. We do want to cry out to God for mercy in the threats that we face and the situations that are dire. Let's don't miss the opportunity to also ask, God, have mercy on our hearts. Grow us to be more like Christ, even in the midst of what I am experiencing. So what do we make of all this? Does it comfort you to know that God knows you completely? Does it comfort you to know that He's near? Is God your treasure? Are there thoughts that you have about God that are less than trusting and joyous? Are there ways you would seek for God to lead you and transform you? What wonderful news we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus, we have access to the Father and to experience his love for us. The more we consider God's love for us, despite his knowing everything about us, the more amazed we will be at the Savior's work and the Father's love. We will come to love more and more the idea that God knows us. Because of Jesus, God's promise to be ever with us is unwavering. The Holy Spirit of God is there with us to guide us in truth and assure us of God's love. We will grow more and more to love that God is near to us. Because of Jesus, we can know what God is like. He is the one who would go to those great lengths to save us 
and secure us forever, and who is working through all things for his ultimate glory and for our ultimate good. Because of Jesus, we have the freedom to confess our sins and receive God's forgiveness and power for change. The gospel says, I'm not left to myself without hope. Because of Jesus, you have a heavenly Father who is with you to rescue his exhausted, bleeding sons and daughters. Beat up by sin, perplexed in this fallen world, but standing on the beach with hope for what's to come. When our lives rear up and show themselves to be just as unmanageable as they are, and we remember how unable we are to cope with all that we face, do we have one who knows us like no other? who is with us no matter where we may go, who loves us as, the only, as only the one who made us and redeemed us can, and who through our trials and our tribulations, our joys and our triumphs, is conforming our lives into the image of his glorious Son. Does God know you? Is God with you? Is he giving you grace today for your lives? In Christ, yes and amen. Let's pray. Lord God, you are our heavenly Father whose eye is never off of us, who looks upon us with love, who is eager to give grace, who has mercy abounding, who attends to our every way and says to us, there is rescue for you. I will bring you home to me. Oh, what wonderful words to hear, Father. Thank you that you have given us your word. Thank you that you have shown us how dear we are to you. That you would know us. That you would be with us, never to forsake. That you own us. That you are sovereign over our days. And that you have rescued us and will rescue us. God, you are worthy of all our praise, all of our adoration. May you be glorified in our lives. Give grace to us that it may be so. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. You've been listening to a message recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us on the web at www dot cornerstone church of knoxville dot com or call our church office at eight six five six nine four four three five six. We'd love to have you join us in celebrating God's grace and pursuing God's purpose.